So good afternoon, everybody, or good evening, or good morning, wherever you are. And I wanted to invite us to begin in a little bit different way for this Dharma talk, and that's just to, to take some time to come into this feeling sense of Sangha, of community. And the way I invite you to do that again is just to get a sense of the body sitting or lying down or whatever posture it's in. And to take in this community that you're in. Yeah, you might wanna allow the eyes to go away from the screen and then back onto the screen and then just to see your fellow yogis here. And if you're willing to turn on your video, it really so helps for this cultivation of community. And I know that sometimes maybe we're not ready to be seen on video. Maybe you're still in your pajamas. Pajamas, A-okay for Dharma talks, just so you know. And to really take in each other. I find it so sweet. And you can scroll through the pages, either those arrows on the side, if you have a computer or you can swipe if you have a phone to see your fellow yogis, to really take them in. And for those of you who have been on retreats, what I've noticed compared to being like on a residential retreat at Spirit Rock is I get to see everyone's faces. Like sometimes when I'm a participant, it's like I feel like what I really know is every, everyone's the back of their heads. Like I really know everyone's back of their heads. But this way I get to, to really take some time to, to see others, to take them in. You know, and there's always this weird thing sometimes about eye contact on, on retreats that you hear from those crazy retreat teachers. But here we get to do something a little bit differently. To really honor each other in our community here. And do you feel the difference in feeling when you take others in rather than just looking at a screen? Like something different happens in my heart when I do that. And so I just invite you to keep that in your heart as I, as I begin to share with you for um, this Dharma talk for this this period that we have together. And I feel like if your heart is feeling like mine, like right now I could say anything, like I could give the most horrible Dharma talk and it would be like, eh, not a problem. So I guess I have some ulterior, ulterior motive here. Anyway. So last week I was taking a walk in the forest here near Flagstaff, Arizona. And spring is in the air here. 
and in the forest there were all these fern plants and it's a time of spring and I don't know if you've ever seen these with fern plants where the the fern leaves are in all these stages of unfurling their leaves towards the sun. Maybe you've seen that, right? Some are completely closed, some are halfway open, but they're all on their way to opening towards the sunlight, these fern, fern leaves unfurling themselves towards the sunlight. So small, some of these plants, yet it was so moving and touching to see that movement towards the sunlight of that opening. We live on such a beautiful planet, don't you think? So moving and so touching. I feel grateful to be on this planet, planet Earth. And it's troubled too, as you know so well. The pandemic, of course. And not only the pandemic, but we notice this virus. It's, it's almost like this virus is taking sometimes the highways and byways of these structures and systems of inequality. How it, it doesn't affect us equally. And many of you know this, of, of these studies that are coming out around the demographics of, of how it's valence to people, uh, lower, lower economic, socioeconomic status, which then intersects with race. And of course, intersecting with age. The impact that we see. And also what comes with such trouble, like a great pandemic like this is that there's the invisi invisibility of other troubles in the world. Sometimes we, the world doesn't see the, the, the suffering still happening in Syria or in Yemen, or the continued refugee, Rohingya refugee crisis. They can kind of disappear in some way, or even around climate change and the climate catastrophe. And that's what we're thrown into, isn't it? This, this beautiful world of something so simple of like these, these fern plants unfurling their leaves towards the sun and a troubled world. And in some ways, this is what was coming to me listening to Matthew's talk yesterday, which I so appreciated. I found it so moving. And, and these, these two aspects of practice, the opening and the protecting opening to our pain, grief, and our anxieties, you could say both individually and collectively, yet being supportive by what he was calling protecting. And for this Dharma talk, I, I, I want to take the next step with this notion of what Matthew was calling protecting, kind of what supports this opening. And, and I want to take a little bit of a different angle to it to show how opening and protecting are so intertwined and the frame for, for this talk is, is you could say that there are two aspects of this practice. And, and again, Matthew was pointing to this, is cultivating the capacity to be with our pains, our grief, our anxieties, with dukkha, and the full understand, 
understanding of that word, the full range of suffering, but also cultivating the capacity to be with the beautiful, to be with the wholesome. This is just as important, and I would say sometimes more important than the former, and definitely just as challenging, and so needed for the former to open to dukkha. And this is what I want to talk about, is, is cultivating this capacity to open to the beautiful, just like those fern leaves, like unfurling. Can you unfurl the leaves of your life towards the sunlight, towards the sunlight of freedom, towards the sunlight of beauty? So important, especially in, in times of trouble. I think this is so much the, the process of our path is learning this, is how can you continue to open to that which is beautiful and wholesome in the midst of the trouble? And one story that comes to mind around this is, uh, you can say, to me, one of the, the greatest Buddhist practitioners of the 20th century, uh, Adi Rinpoche, who some of you know, uh, one of his students, uh, Sokni Rinpoche, and Adi Rinpoche, uh, there's a wonderful book written about him called Freedom and Bondage, which was an account of his life um, before and during when he was in prison in a Chinese prison camp for 20 years. And before he got captured and then was thrown into prison, so this is during the, the, the Chinese invasion of, of, of uh, Tibet, he was basically on the run for two years of his life, trying to escape persecution. And of course, he's a reincarnate Lama in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. So he was definitely being targeted. And, and when he was on the run, uh, I, I mean this literally, he was being hunted down and shot at continually. This was just the process of it and fleeing from one place to another with a whole group of, uh, of folks in his, his community. And it was interesting, he, 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 sometimes they would be traveling high in the mountains and they would come across these areas or these hermitages of where the great masters of his lineage had practiced. And his heart was so moved by it. And this is what he said, he said, arriving at such places I felt okay, I'm being chased now, but so what? Let whatever's happens happen. It was just so wonderful to be able to visit such places. Isn't that amazing? Here he is being chased down and he still has the capacity to see the beauty of these places high in the mountains where these great practitioners practice and how it filled his heart. He just loved it. It was amazing. And if you read the book, you'll, you'll find some of the spirit that, that he has, even when he's in prison for these 20 years. He's just really so incredible. It's the ability to find the beautiful, or what uh, this word wholesome, the, the Pali word is, Pali being the early scriptural language of Buddhism, kusala, which is often translated as uh, wholesome, finding that in the midst of challenge. And so what I mean by by wholesome or what this word kusala means is sometimes it's translated as skillful that which is skillful 
for that which is onward leading leads onward to our freedom, to the beauty in our lives. It's that which is beautiful, that which flourishes. To me, this is why I shared with you the story of the fern, the fern leaves, because that, that seeing those fern leaves unfurled towards the sunlight, it's like, oh, the emotional feeling for me of seeing that is like, that's wholesome. There it is, that's flourishing. That's the movement of the heart that I want to capture. That's, I can't find the words, but it's the fern leaves have given it to me. So it's this process of allowing the leaves of your life to, to open, to unfurl towards freedom, towards flourishing and beauty. And I'm sure you know this, of how you can find beauty in the midst of trouble and how your spiritual practice can help with that. To me, this is what's about in some ways. Last year, I had the experience of this. Yeah, it was last year. A very dear friend of mine uh, suddenly um, died. She was she she was an accident, and it was a drowning, and it was horrendous. You know, her her husband and her child were there that witnessed it. It was devastating to both of them. And I remember flying out to California for the funeral. It was just after it, and it was devastating for the whole community. Young, brilliant, amazing woman. And in the midst of such tragedy and such devastation, it was amazing how my heart could feel during that funeral and getting ready for the funeral. The sense of love and connection and compassion it was actually a beautiful experience. It was a horrible experience and it was a beautiful experience. What allowed it to be a beautiful experience is the training of the heart, for the heart to, to know what it is to open to that which is beautiful, that which is wholesome in the midst of trouble. This is such an important skill. How do you open to the joys and goodness in your life. And it can be tough. Have you noticed what your mind can do around the joys and the goodness in your life? Sometimes what comes up, oh, I don't deserve it. Oh, there's so many horrible things that are going on in the world. If I'm feeling something really wonderful, maybe I'm disregarding the horrible things that are going on in the world. Isn't Buddhism about dukkha? <laughs> And then, then we don't learn the skill. It's like there's a, almost sometimes a scariness to opening to that which is beautiful, wholesome. It's scary to allow the, the leaves to unfurl towards the sunlight. The, the poet Alison Luterman, you know her. I think she, she lives in the Bay Area there. Really fine poet. She has this poem confessing to happiness that I think captures this quality so much. She begins her poem. She says, I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. I just want to pause there for that first line. To me, it's like, oh, there's so much just in that first line. I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. 
I know, I know the jealous fates in their dolorous heaven, how they love to feast on the heart. I know they've already marked the spot where one of us dies and the other stands open-mouthed and uncomprehending as dirt closes over our one song. But for just this moment, I want what I have. Right, just for this moment, I want what I have. Maybe you've noticed this, that it can be difficult to fully confess to happiness, to allow your leaves to unfurl towards the sunlight of joy and happiness and freedom. And do you hear some of her definition of happiness here? To me, I think I'd use the word contentment. She says, oh, just for just this moment, I want what I have. You ever feel that? That wanting just what you have, that contentment, not wanting more, not wanting less? And when I hear that, it's like, oh, I can feel the settling, that kind of contentment and happiness. So I want to point out that this unfurling the leaves towards the sunlight in this way, it's a skill. This is what I love about this word kusla, is I'm, I'm learning a skill. I'm learning an art just like it is to play the piano or learn how to paint or learn how to dance. I need to learn the skills of it, and I need to to train in it. So it's a training, a training to deeply confess to happiness, to unfurl our leaves towards freedom. And one realm of this training, which I think sometimes can be odd, when I first heard about this, it was completely odd. One of the trainings in towards happiness, towards freedom, is in ethical integrity. It's, and this is the tricky thing, is to see that our training and ethical conduct around the five precepts, it's about how good it feels to be ethical. Which for me, I just want to point out, was just such a weird thing about Buddhism. I grew up in a Catholic family, really a great Irish Catholic family. And those of you maybe who grew up in Catholicism know that, that sometimes the beginnings of, of, of that was, is um, what's called one's first Holy Communion, which happens when you're like in second grade in the United States, you're seven or eight. And uh, it's when you can fully partake in some of these Catholic services. And part of that, when you're seven or eight years old, is you have to go to confession and to confess, confess your sins. So... And I remember how terrified I was about this. Is this a good sin to bring? Is this a good one that I should have for my first Holy Communion when I'm seven or eight? Like I was being inculcated to, to, to reflect on my sinful nature, to really reflect on how I get it wrong. And I feel like that is such a great skill of mine. Like I don't need any more skill with that. Like, 
I am so good at saying how I get it wrong. It's, it's like easy. That's what I love about uh, Matthew sharing last night. Like our neurosis, it's like, it, it just has an effortless quality to it. And that's, that's like what it is for me is like, my mind is so effortless in terms of that. And so sometimes when we think about ethical conduct, we think about, oh, how, how I get it wrong. Well, how are the ways that I wasn't ethical today? But the Buddha was really different about that. What, what the encouragement is, is to reflect on how are you ethical today? And can you notice how sweet it feels? And there's a real encouragement to claim that. For example, there's a, the Subha Sutta where he's talking about uh, what's called an equipment of the mind, what stabilizes the heart and mind. This is what he says. He says, here, a practitioner is a speaker of truth. Practitioner is honest. And they think, wow, I'm a speaker of the truth. I'm honest. And they gain inspiration in the meaning of that. They gain inspiration in the Dhamma, in this practice of ethical conduct. And they gain gladness connected with the Dhamma. It is that gladness connected with the wholesome, with the beautiful, with like being honest, that I call, call an equipment of the mind. Isn't that interesting what the Buddha is saying? He's saying that like if you're honest today at all, at night when you reflect on that, you should just notice how good that felt. And the cool thing about the five precepts, and this is what I really love about it, it's not only what I do every day that's ethical, it's what I also refrain from doing that can feel really good. So to reflect, oh, today I didn't yell at anybody. Wow, that feels really good. I didn't steal. Wow, that feels so sweet. And it seems so minor and we wanna pass it off like I didn't put enough effort into it. Can you imagine if it was just for one day on this planet that no one yelled at another person out of hatred. That's what I call the real revolution. Refraining from these things and noticing them, that's a sweet contribution to the world. Can you savor that? It's really so powerful. You know, my partner and I, it's really sweet in the evenings when we're going to sleep. A lot of times, this is what we'll say to we know, one another. Hey, hey, Robin, hey, Brian, what'd you, what'd you do good today? How did you partake in goodness today? I love it. It feels so good to hear it and to express it. That's to confess to happiness. It's really so sweet. And, and I want to point out, this seems minor, but this is the foundation that the Buddha said was necessary for the unfolding of this path. And I, I just want to be, I'm going to give a little of my critique, and I am guilty of this too. In the insight tradition, we often miss these first foundational steps of really like landing generosity and ethical conduct and the joy around them. And then without having that foundation and then trying to practice meditation, I can just see the Buddhists being like, oh my God, what are you guys doing? <laughs> like you need the foundation. 
and I've practiced so long for this, like, oh, I can skip over this because I want all the good groovy things like not self and things like that. <laughs> but it makes a difference because there's a stability of the heart that allows it to open as, as, uh, as Matthew was talking about. It's so necessary, so important. Even in one discourse, I'm sorry, I'm getting all excited about this. <laughs> There's one discourse, the Chaitanya Sutta, where I feel like the, the Buddha's being radical here. He, he, um, he talks, the, he, it's this unfolding of the path, and the first unfolding of the path is feeling just the sweetness of ethical conduct. And then once that's ended, he says, you know, there's no need, once there's the sweetness of that, of generosity and ethical conduct, there's no need for an act of will. You don't need to do anything to feel joy because it's right there because it feels so good. And then when you feel joy, there's no need to do anything to concentrate the mind because the, then the mind gets settled. And then when the mind is concentrated, there's no need to have an act of will to see things clearly or to let go or to be, uh, have a quality of disenchantment or the free, the heart to be freed. It just rolls on because there's the foundation there. It's an interesting thing that he's pointing out. This is important. And I, I want to point out, it's so easy to dismiss this stuff. I remember this is early, early on in my teaching. The, uh, I was teaching a retreat with my main mentor. Actually, some of you uh, here know him, he, uh, maybe those, those of you from Durango. Eric Kolvig, and we had just finished a retreat. And, and if anybody knows this teacher, he's kind of like a sweet, big teddy bear. He's so sweet. It's amazing. <laughs> and uh, just a softness and an openness. And we had finished leading this retreat, and he turned to me and he said, hey, Brian, we did a good thing. And I, given the way my mind is, probably said something like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And it was one of the only times he was so stern and serious with me. And he looked at me and he said, no, can you take that in? And it was such an important teaching for me, how my mind and my heart wanted to dismiss the good things that I was engaged in, that I wanted to minimize in some way. And I was missing this essential part of this, this practice. Oh, that feels so good. I can feel my heart open when I do that. I feel a sense of stability. In psychological terms, this is what it is to build a strong sense of self. And I think this is the misunderstanding around the teachings around not-self. Sometimes the teachings of not-self can be understood of that we shouldn't have a strong sense of self, or there's no place for that of the importance sometimes of, of identity in very particular ways that are so supportive. There's a psychotherapist who said that he wanted this bumper sticker on his car that said, Lord, help me accept the truth about myself, no matter how good it is. That's the process. Can you accept the truth about yourself? 
no matter how good it is. And I invite you to do this on this retreat. If this all, is this all you do, let's say you just, you're just like, screw it, I'm just gonna watch YouTube videos all day long, go to the Dharma talk, things like that. And then if you only do in the evening, reflecting on the goodness of your day, I guarantee it's gonna be a great retreat. It's like the, the guarantee. See what that's like to enjoy your goodness. It feels good. So that's one practice I'm inviting you to really explore in terms of this opening to the wholesome, allowing the leaves of your life to unfurl towards the sunlight of that which is beautiful, that which leads to freedom. And then there's a, another dimension, which is closer to the sitting meditation and walking meditation and the in-between times meditation, I'll call it. And that's to start to become aware, to become sensitive to wholesome states of mind or beautiful states of mind. They're actually literally, literally called beautiful states of mind in, in the Abhidhamma, this uh, later book that you find that's part of early Buddhism. Sobhana Chaitasikas, beautiful states of mind or beautiful qualities of heart. And there's all kinds of lists of these beautiful qualities of hearts, heart, but I just want to go over a few of them to invite you to notice what it's like to be sensitive to these qualities of heart that are beautiful or wholesome. And a classic list is what's called the seven factors of awakening. And I want to go over them. And it's going to, at first, it's going to feel technical and heady and weird and maybe awkward. But once you start to get a feeling for them, hopefully it will become something that feels a bit more intuitive and you'll get a felt sense of it. The process that I'm going to be describing to you of understanding these seven factors of awakening or which of these seven, seven qualities of heart that are wholesome it's kind of like I remember learning to dance and you know someone up in front would show a certain move or moves and I would try it and of course they'd have to come over and be like Brian that's not really so right can you do it like this and it would feel so awkward and it felt like I had to think about it a lot and then finally after my clumsiness and things like that then I could like feel it in my body I was like oh this is what they're talking about I can feel it so this is a forewarning. At first, it's going to feel heady. You're going to, I'm going to be talking about these seven factors. It's going to feel intellectual. You're going to be like, oh, my God. But then, hopefully, there'll be, start to be a feeling sense of it. And, and I want to point out, it's in our sitting meditation and walking meditation that sometimes we can get it. But I, I love, there's a wonderful article by Gil Fronsdale where he talks about, even when you're driving the car mindfully, you can start to get a sensitivity to these seven qualities just lightly. I also want to say there's so many different dimensions to this teaching I'm going to give you, but I just want to give you an introduction and we'll review it also tomorrow. So let me, let me uh, see if I can bring this up here, see what happens here. Okay, can someone give me a thumbs up? Can you see that? Yay, okay. So these seven factors of awakening are just qualities of the harder mind and I want to go through them 
really briefly and to just give a, a beginning taste of them of how you can uh, discover them and also support them. It's like you can nourish them a little bit. Mindfulness. This is what we, Matthew and I have been talking about. It's that quality of presence that you've been learning or that you know in your meditation. You have a sense of when the mind's just lost and when you feel a bit more mindful, like when you're feeling the body. Oh, wow, now I'm feeling the breath. Interesting. Oh, I, I can feel my feet moving. Oh, there's mindfulness. There's that one. The second one, investigation. The word I use is curiosity because investigation is a, sometimes feels a little too clinical for me. But when I notice in my meditation that I've, there's a little bit of curiosity, like I'm curious about what the breath feels like, even if it's for two seconds. Oh, that, oh that's what the in-breath feels like. Oh, there's the feeling of the out-breath. Oh, there's the, you know, that little gap in between the in-breath and out-breath? Interesting. Or I'm going to become curious about how a sound arises and passes away. So I want to be clear, we're not looking for like these big dramatic experiences. Curiosity can be so subtle. And there it is. There it is. It's just a little fern leaf unfurling a little bit. We're not looking for the grandiose pine tree, just a little fern in the forest. There's curiosity, noticing when it's there, noticing when mindfulness is there. Energy, in this context, is the energy to practice. Oh, interesting, I have some energy to practice right now. It doesn't have to be anything grand or profound. Because when there's curiosity, there's going to be energy. So there's some energy to, to practice. And then if there's energy, there's rapture. And I think, again, another word that I use is delight. Have you noticed at times when you're present a little bit, or like when you're feeling the feet on the ground when you're doing walking meditation, how it's kind of sweet to be mindful. I mean, it's probably why you're on this retreat is because you've noticed that it can be sweet to be present for your life. It doesn't have to be this huge rapturous experience. It can just be like the sweetness of presence. There it is. So I just want to point out in these first four, you've probably experienced these. We're not talking some grand profound. This isn't like some like esoteric teaching here. The Buddha is saying, hey, th these are right here. Let's pay some attention to them. They're really sweet. And then tranquility. That's just the world where you feel a little bit more settled or calm. It's like, wow, I'm not looking at the news. I feel okay right now. <laughs> There's some tranquility. Interesting. It feels like this. And then concentration. Oh, I'm a little less distracted. My phone's off. I'm not being pulled away by it. Again, it doesn't have to be so profound. And then you might find qualities of equanimity. And in this sense, I feel okay. Like I, I feel some achiness in my knees, but yeah, it's, it really is okay. I, I feel fine with it. These little elements of this, they need your attention. And when you, you, when they, when, when they, you give them your attention, it's like you're watering these little plants and then they grow some. Can you notice them? Because all of these seven are happening in your practice and they're not getting watered by your attention. And often this can be because, because we get pulled into our difficulties. Like maybe you got a bringing like I did. Like I, I know what's going on. I know when it's wrong. I'm really good at that one. 
Greed, hatred, delusion, I can tell you when they're arising. My reactivity, which is a good thing, it's just that we get in, in, so enchanted by them that we don't see the wholesome that's happening probably every hour. And I invite you to notice them. Sometimes I sit down in my meditation, I just notice them for a few seconds and something changes. And as Gil was saying, you can notice them while you're driving. You can notice them while you're cooking or you're doing walking meditation just to check in. And also I wanna simplify this. Like if you're like me, seven is a big number. Like seven, I can't remember seven. So this is gonna be three. So we got mindfulness. Is there some mindfulness here? Yeah, oh, just as when I say mindfulness, I can feel my breathing. Is there some energy towards the practice? Is there some curiosity? Oh, there it is. Yeah. Is there kind of settling or, or calming kind of quality? Yeah. You might have the world of three rather than seven, because seven can be complicated, and three is good enough. I think that's my whole goal with sometimes with Buddhism, see if I can narrow down these big lists of smaller and smaller numbers. That's what I like. Numbers are difficult for me. So there's that. And then I, I want to give another familiar list that some of you probably know. And these qualities might be pop, uh, popping up too, which are the Brahma Viharas, which Matthew and I might be talking about a little bit more as we go on, is you might have a moment of kindness. You're walking down the street and you see a neighbor and your heart just opens a little bit. Or it could be kindness towards a flower that you see. You feel some compassion towards yourself or another. You feel some appreciative joy. Oh, there's a misspelling there. Not a, you can't appreciate joy, but this is appreciative joy. So sorry about the misspelling. Which is just uh, appreciating the joy of others. But Ajahn Sumedho talks about it really being like touched by beauty. He puts that in that, that category. And then we have equanimity again. These are happening in your life. And I'll be posting these, all this, the seven factors of awakening, and I'll give the list of the Brahma Viharas. If you click on that, uh, what is it? What is it, Matthew? Uh, messages from the teacher or teacher messages on that website. I'll post it there sometime after this Dharma talk, just so you can see it there. So that, so, so that will be there for you to reference again. I invite you to keep it simple. And remember, it's going to be clunky, specifically you can sit down, start to meditate, and then just check in. Is there a little bit of curiosity, a little bit of mindfulness? And when I'm doing it, I'll be honest, what's happening is I'm also calling them. It's like I'm inviting them to be there. It's kind of like, hey, hey, you want to be here right now? It's totally like this really great environment. Curiosity, would you come and just like hang out a little bit more? This is called calling on the, the seven factors of awakening. It's totally fine to do. Sometimes, you know, we can hear so much about being with that we feel like we can't add anything to our meditation. But the Buddha was all over this, inviting the, the seven factors of awakening. Inviting the seven factors of awakening is different than demanding them to be here right now. Right? Not grasping, just inviting them to be here right now. And they get to be here as much as they want to be. It's like they, they get the open invitation. It's really sweet. And it sometimes is a great way to start your, your sitting meditation and walking meditation. And if they don't want to be there, 
for that sitting meditation or walking meditation, that's okay too. And if you're okay with none of them being there, then you get the, you get the equanimity. Isn't that cool? Like once you get okay with not, them not being there, then the last one shows up, the equanimity. So you always get like that, that freebie if you're okay with how things are. A big invitation to, to really practice with this teaching. So again, I just want to repeat what I was going over. I'm inviting you to explore two things. At night, before you go to sleep, reflect on your goodness. It is seriously transformative. It's been so powerful for me. So I should say, that's the rumor that it's transformative, and then you got to figure out if the rumor is true or not. Seems like it's true to me, but that's your job as a practitioner. And then the second one is, can you notice wholesome qualities of mind or heart in your meditation? And to savor them or make much of them. You know, sometimes the Buddha will say to make much of it. Allow them to be there. Yeah, not to grasp onto them. When they want to leave, it's okay for them to leave. So you need to learn the skill of savoring compared to grasping. Yeah, that's a whole Dharma talk right there. But, but you, you'll know the difference because when there's grasping, you're suffering. And when they're savoring, you're not. It's a good, it's a good indication. <laughs> so just these two explorations. And we'll review the, the seven factors also tomorrow morning. And then lastly, remember, this is a skill that you're learning, both of these. And any kind of skill, like when you're learning an art, it takes time. It's the repetition that makes it land. And you need patience and kindness towards yourself. You know, the, the quote I like to offer around this um, because I find it so interesting in terms of learning a skill or an art is this, this quote from Michael Jordan, the great basketball player. He says, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I think he was talking about his professional career. It's a lot of shots to miss. And then he said, I've lost almost 300 games and this is the real kicker to me. He says, and 26 times, 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. Can you imagine that? Hundreds of thousands of people watching you. Probably a lot of people betting their paychecks on you. And you miss. And then he says, I failed over and over and over again in my life. And that's why I succeed. That's the practice we're doing. That's, that's learning the skill of unfurling, unfurling those leaves 
of your life towards the sunlight, towards freedom, unfurling the leaves of your life towards the beautiful. Yeah, so may our leaves unfurl towards this freedom of the sunlight for the benefit of all beings. Thank you for your attention. Let's just uh, sit briefly here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.